My name is Scott Weiss, and you're listening to Let's Get to Work, the podcast series that dives deep into recruiting and hiring trends, the global workforce, the future of work, job search tips, technology, and more. Hi, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Let's Get to Work. I am your host, Scott Weiss. You know, if you're a job seeker or you're at a point in your career where you're thinking about making a change, there is no shortage of books and articles and videos and podcasts out there, thousands of career coaches and resume writers that you could turn to. But I think we can all agree that a lot of what's out there is outdated. Things have changed a lot in the last 5, 10, 15 years. And so what do you do if you're a millennial and you're looking for relevant advice? Who can you turn to? Well, fortunately, you've got Madeline Mann. Madeline is the creator of Self-Made Millennial, a YouTube channel that provides rapid-fire, battle-tested career and job search advice, primarily to the population of millennials. This year, Madeline was named a top 50 person to follow on LinkedIn, and she's a top 10 YouTube personality for job seekers, and we are really happy to have her here. Welcome to the show, Madeline. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Awesome. So let's start with the elephant in the room. What and how can we define millennial? Because I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there about what exactly a millennial is. Yes. Well, the way I define it is they were under 18 when we hit the millennium, the year 2000. Uh, And also, these are now people who are moving into manager roles. They're in their late 20s. They're in their 30s. We have Gen Z now as the new Uh, generation coming into the workforce. So those are generally your junior employees. And we've always been talking about millennials in the workplace, but now they're actually the largest population uh, in the workforce. So basically, you've got baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, and then did you say Generation Z is what comes after millennials? Yes. Got it. And how do they... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's correct. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that part again. Okay, so basically, Sorry. no, it's all right. So basically, you have baby boomers, Gen Xers, millennials, and then is it Generation Y? No, yeah, Gen Z. Okay, let me try it one more time. <laughs> Thank God for editing. <laughs> okay, so basically, you've got baby boomers, Generation Xers, millennials, and then Generation Z would be what comes after millennials. Yes. Got it. And how do they, like, where do they get the statistics to know what percentage of the workforce is what? I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess uh, I guess a lot of these consulting firms generally uh, create a lot of statistics and studies around these things. Yep. So you, I imagine yourself, would categorize as a millennial? Yes. Got it. Okay. And you recognized that there was a lot of people like you that maybe don't really know how to best navigate through all of the latest trends and and available technologies in terms of like job search. And that's kind of the niche you decided to carve out for yourself. How did that come about? Right. Well, we were we were taught that you should go to college and then you get a job, which was true for our parents. But we then went to college and then we didn't get jobs. <laughs> we <laughs> learned that uh, it was a very competitive market and with with uh, applying online, it's a very crowded 
difficult way to stand out and that school wasn't really teaching us a lot of practical skills. And so I created this channel because I was working in HR and recruiting I, at a tech company and I was getting all the resumes in and I was reading them and I was also the one who was in the back rooms hearing about who gets what promotions. And there's just so much insider knowledge that I ended up picking up that I thought if only more people knew about what is going on behind the scenes, people would make much more informed decisions about how to make the best possible uh, moves in their career. And so what I did is I started responding to people's resumes individually, telling them why they weren't why they weren't chosen for an interview and also how to improve their application. And this proved to be absolutely a disaster. People were very mean to be back. They, they do not want unsolicited feedback as well as uh, there were other people who were really nice about it, but they would then say, let's hop on the phone. Let me resubmit my resume. Let's, and then it ended up just completely spiraling out of control as far as how much time and emotional capital it was taking for me. And so I thought there has to be a better way to help people. And so I thought, why not take to video? Why not put all of this information out there and make it as tactical and practical as I could possibly do it. And that's how uh, Self-Made Millennial was born. Awesome. So let me get this straight. You're working as a recruiter or working in HR for a company. Your job is to help hire, you know, get candidates in the pipeline, get them interviewed, make offers, etc. And here you are kind of going off on a tangent because you're probably a very nice, helpful person by nature, um, giving them going above and beyond in terms of here's why you didn't get the interview. Here are some things I noticed about your resume that you might want to work on. And you're doing this while you're still employed at this company. How is that go? How did that go over with your, your boss or your teammates? How did they feel about it? Well, so I was in charge of HR. So I really was the one to really uh, oversee my own function. And so I think ultimately, for me, I saw it as a play of uh, being a really great employer, being someone who is transparent and helpful. Uh, I think that the reaction from the people who were applying uh, didn't quite appreciate that. So I, ultimately, it was it was I was able to get all my work done. Uh, it didn't necessarily infringe on my ability to to do my work, but it was a learning experience for sure. Yeah, it's like the right idea, but maybe not the perfect venue for it. So you were smart enough to recognize that there's value here, but maybe I should take this out of the context of what I'm doing here in HR and recruiting and kind of make it its own standalone thing, which would kind of probably play off better in the kind of the real world, which it sounds like it has. Exactly. People just didn't want to have that unsolicited feedback and ultimately taking to content, which was something that I, I had a background in journalism. So creating content was something that I felt felt pretty natural, though it was always the written medium. And so I took to video as a bit more of a, a challenge. Yeah, we're going to jump into that in a second. Just want to hit on one more thing here. It's kind of funny because I think if you ask job seekers and folks that are out in the 
workforce that are applying for jobs and interviewing, one of their what is their biggest frustration? And I bet you almost all of them will say lack of feedback, lack of response from the employers that I submit my resume to or interview with. And it's it's kind of ironic that here you are giving exactly what these people supposedly want and they're off, put off by it in a way, right? But it sounds like in your case, it wasn't just a yes, no, kind of black and white. You were actually going a step further and highlighting specific things about what they could be doing better uh, to give themselves a better shot in, in future opportunities. And, and maybe that was a little bit more than they had bargained for. Scott, it's so crazy. You're right. People are always asking for this additional feedback. But when it comes down to human nature, when people are actually have to face the music about why they were rejected for a role, the majority of people respond poorly, which is maybe a good uh, a kind of indicator that they might not be the best employee. But it is so crazy because you're absolutely right. And even when I ask audiences, how would you feel if uh, someone responded back with how to improve your cover letter. Hands go up of like, oh yeah, I'd love that. But when you actually look at it, the reason why employers don't do it is because there's so many repercussions. People accuse them of uh, being biased or uh, they become very angry with the company. So if people are wondering why they're not getting feedback, it's because it's been tried and it has failed. Yeah. And there's really very little upside because here you were going about doing it to sort of help with the employer brand and the you know the the reputation of the company you were working for and it was it was backfiring and it kind of reminds me of you know I work as a headhunter and so I spend my my time putting people in the mix for jobs and having them you know do interviews and and of course they all want feedback and I I'll never forget it actually was just a few months ago uh, I submitted a candidate for a position and the hiring manager wrote back and told me that based on the resume, they, they didn't see a fit and they kind of gave specific reasons. And I went back to the candidate and I said, hey, look, you know how I submitted you to company X? Well, unfortunately, they're not going to move forward with an interview based on you know these specific things. And his response was, why are you telling me that? Why are you telling me if you're going to submit me and they don't want to interview me, I don't want to hear it. Only tell me if they want to interview me, which I was like, okay, that's the first, right? I'd never heard that before. But I think it plays into this bigger idea that we're talking about, which is it's really hard to take uh, n feedback that we would deem negative, right? When in actuality, it's probably the best thing for you because if, if these people had been willing to listen to the things that you were offering them, and maybe now they are because you're doing it in a, in a different venue, um, it's going to help them, you know, but you have to be able to check yourself, you know, let your guard down, be vulnerable, receive that feedback, process it and move forward, right? I completely agree. Yep. If it, if the feedback ever stings a little bit, or you notice yourself kind of repelling from it or retorting, that means it's probably a pretty good piece of feedback. So you should listen to it. <laughs> yeah, that's why they say never take advice from friends and family, because they're usually going to tell you what makes you feel good, not necessarily what, uh, what you need to hear, right? Um, Right. I, I, yeah. And I always try to, you know, I always try to take the opposite approach, which is I'm going to tell you what you need to hear, even though you may not like hearing it, which I don't think makes me very popular, but at least people know what they're going to get. Um, so you move, you take this background you have in journalism and you say, look, I've got these skills. I know how to take concepts and, and put them into some kind of, you know, f content form. I've done a lot of writing. Why not try video? And so how did, how did you get started? Um, like what was that experience like for you? And, 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 and where did it go from kind of your initial starting point to where we are today? 
So I locked myself in a room and I just started writing every single piece of feedback and and tips that I could possibly have for both in your career and your job search. And I emerged from that room a few hours later and I had already written at least 10 or 15 episodes because it, and it just flowed out, out of me, which is, which was the first indication that I should do this and that I knew it would be fun. And I borrowed a coworker's DSLR camera. I sat there in front of it. I started talking and it was extremely awkward. I mean, I had to repeat over and over again. I actually just released uh, my a bunch of my bloopers on LinkedIn last week and people were like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you have like this extreme of bloopers. I thought that you were just born to be on video, which is absolutely not true. Um, so I recorded all those videos and then I, I just learned how to edit myself. And I just sat there for hours and hours. And now I'm, I'm much quicker at all of this, much better at all of this. But the starting point was definitely one of a lot of learnings. So what was your, like, obviously you, you probably have a passion for content creation and you like telling stories. That's why you pursued journalism initially. And, but like, what was the, the trigger for you? I know you said you wanted to help. I mean, what were, this was obviously not something you were getting paid to do. Nobody was coming to you saying, Hey, here's a bunch of money, go make some videos. So like, what, what was it that, you know, pushed you to, to jump in and do this when you probably had other things that you could be doing, like focusing on making a living, so to speak? Well, the wonderful thing is I absolutely have found my calling in life. Like working in human resources, working in talent development is truly what I love. And when I leave work, it's what I talk about. And when I'm at work, it's what I talk about. And so the fact that I could parlay that passion into helping people, it felt like a no brainer and also felt like, I think these days, you obviously have a resume and you have accomplishments and experience. But the world is moving towards having a personal professional brand and any way that you can bolster that professional brand, be it with articles or blogs or a podcast like this, it makes you have a standout aspect of, in your career. And so I saw this also as a way for me to show how passionate I am to help people and to build my own personal brand. It makes sense. So like while you were doing this, were you still working in HR and recruiting and, and do you still functionally work in that capacity or has this kind of become your full-time thing? Oh yes. I still, I still work in it. And I absolutely, it is what fuels my content. Like I feel like I'm so sharp because, and I, and I just never run out of content because I am constantly in the thick of it, working on amazing teams and seeing these dynamics play out every day. Got it. So you're still working as an employee and supporting the goals and objectives of your employer, but Madeline Mann and your career advice on YouTube and, and the stuff you put out on LinkedIn is really kind of your own thing, kind of separate from that. But they, there's a synergy between the two because obviously it's all tied together. Yes. And I, I get this question a lot. People ask me, why aren't you just consulting on the side or doing your own thing, leaving your own job? And I have found that having a side hustle is, is, you know, what, what a lot of people call it is, has made me a much better employee. The reason being is, um, when I'm at work, I'm doing my functional, 
most most effective role functionally where I'm I'm building training programs. I'm working with employees. Like I'm just playing to my strengths constantly and I'm being fulfilled that way by working on a team. When I go home and I work on my own things, I'm fulfilled ex- a lot creatively and have all the freedom. But I'm also shoehorned into, or I guess shoehorn might not be the right term, but I have to be the chief everything officer. I have to focus on building my website and, you know, getting clients and doing all these things. And it's, you're actually spread a lot more thin and you work a lot more hours than you would expect to otherwise. So doing one or the other, I don't know if I'd be completely fulfilled, but having this balance of being able to go somewhere and just play to my strengths completely and then go home and have complete creative freedom, it really has made me a very satisfied person just across the board. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. And when you mentioned the term side hustle, I would imagine that means that you are making a little bit of money on the side from the work that you're doing. It's starting to generate some income for you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Got it. It's it's great that you brought this up because I talk a lot about side hustles um, in some of the content that I create. And I'm a big advocate for, you know, pretty much everybody should have at least one side hustle because there's so many benefits to it. You hit on some of them. Um, you know, the nice thing about a side hustle is right now there are so many ways that you can do it. Like you don't, it doesn't have to be giving career advice. I mean, that's just one of thousands, but whether it's driving for Uber or um, writing blog posts or starting a little Etsy shop, Um, I have my own t-shirt shop on Etsy. I design t-shirts and I make a few hundred dollars a month from it. And it's probably not ever going to be the thing that supports my family, but it's so fun to have diversification in your professional life. And you just never know. You certainly guarantee that some of the skills that you have and develop from your side hustle will transfer to your regular job. But you also never know when that side hustle might take off. So I, I'm assuming you advocate uh, to for side hustles for, for millennials that are in the workforce as well? Absolutely. I think it really, you're right. You hit it spot on. It's a way to gain new skills. Also, I you noticed how many hours are in a day when you have a side hustle, you really, you really do have time to, to work on something that you are really, really excited about. Um, I know since I started self-made millennial and, um, I've built digital courses, I've built eBooks, all these things. And I've noticed that I've stopped watching a lot of TV. I mean, you just kind of imagine, you just realize that, wow, when you just set your mind to something and carve out the time at six in the morning, you work on it. And then, you know, at an hour before bed, and then that's already, you know, two hours in a day that you're working towards something that's bigger than yourself. It really is uh, kind of an incredibly rewarding thing to do with your extra time. Yeah. And I feel like back in the day, you know, we would call it a hobby. Um, and now, the hobby can be the side hustle, meaning you can actually make some money from it. There's so many tools and and techniques and tricks. I mean, I think the internet is obviously the big game changer there because there's access to everything and mobile apps and all that. So my question for you with regards to side hustles is, if you're a working professional, do you need to approach your employer and let them know that you have this side hustle? Is it something that you can just kind of do and it's not really their business? How do you... How do you approach that? Well, so if I'm looking at it from someone who works in human resources, when you sign an agreement with a company, it generally says something like you need to be able to perform every aspect of your job and you can't 
go into, you can't be employed by anyone else that has some sort of competing interest. So I would say that that's really the thing is if your side hustle requires that you, you know, take a bunch of time off or, or do it, it all distracts from your job. I think that's when it becomes something that needs to be a discussion. Um, and also if it's, if it's a direct competitor or has something that's very, uh, could be potentially perceived as competitive to what you're doing now. All right. So you hear that Google employees, if you're working at Google and you're trying to build a better search engine on the side, might be time to reconsider, right? Because that would uh, probably not <laughs> that would be a little bit of a conflict, conflict of interest. So let's jump into the whole topic uh, of millennials for a minute, uh, Madeline. At the top of the conversation, you kind of defined um, what a millennial is and that they represent probably the largest percentage of the workforce now. But for all of us non-millennials, like myself and others who are listening, like what are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about, quote, millennials? I would actually throw that back to you. Like, what have you noticed? Because I, you know, I'm, I am a millennial. I, I've, most of the people I work with are millennials. Um, what, what have you seen? Okay. Well, I would think that the biggest thing that I hear about millennials is that, um, they're kind of, they're not really willing to kind of follow the, the traditional path in terms of this is how we do things. They kind of, they kind of, there's almost like this idea of millennials being a little bit like self-absorbed about this is how I want it. And this is the way it needs to be for me. And so how that translates into the workforce is I don't want to come to the office if I don't have to, I don't want to do this. I'm not going to do that. So it's almost this kind of idea of millennials being maybe a little self-centered or selfish. I don't know if, again, I'm not suggesting that's how I feel. I have a, a sister who qualifies as a millennial, so I get to kind of live it firsthand. But do, do you hear that? I I definitely do. And I think there's also uh, an underlying message there that I think millennials have entered the workforce with a higher higher expectation of what work should be, such as it needs to play to my personal values. I need to feel like my work is meaningful in the world. There's a lot of these kind of higher calling requirements that potentially other uh, other generations haven't had for their, their career. They've thought maybe more it's, you know, you have your career, but then you have other things that are fulfilling. It doesn't have to be where the, your job needs to give you everything and uh, be that uh that place that fulfills you completely. So I think that that has been really interesting. And I've noticed a lot of companies uh, playing into this of really understanding, okay, when we are doing our employer branding, let's talk about why we do our work. Let's talk about who in our company has been making a meaningful impact. Let's talk about how we're going to have a bit more corporate responsibility to show that we are a company that cares about people. So I've noticed that this shift has been happening in the way companies talk about their work to kind of appeal to that desire that this job needs to be something um, greater and more meaningful, uh, which sometimes can also lead down the poor path of, oh, you know, I, I am entitled to having, uh, you know, a better work experience. And what have you done for me lately, which is definitely a, a very toxic way of approaching your career. Yeah. And I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I was going to say the other, I don't, I wouldn't classify it as a misconception because I think it's positive, um, is that millennials really value kind of 
life experiences, they, the, the idea of the work-life balance, kind of merging your work and your life, being super passionate about the why you're doing something. It's very different than like my parents' generation, which was, you don't really question anything. You go to college, you get a job, you work at the same company for 35, 40 years. Um, you know, you retire with a pension and that has changed dramatically. And actually, as we're speaking, I pulled up a, a tweet from October. Uh, I'm on Twitter and this gal, Sophie Verschbau, I don't really know who she is, but she put out this tweet. I wanted to share it with you and get your thoughts on it. She said, a man at the marketing conference I'm at said millennials at his company receive merit-based experiences, i.e. trips, tickets, instead of monetary raises. And now I need to scream into the void for eternity. So I, I wasn't sure I really understood what she said. So I tweeted back and said, wait, I'm confused. Are non-millennials at the company compensated differently? And she said, doubt it. He legit said, this is what millennials want. So I think it's more how they're tailoring their policies for a young employee base. So my question to you is, do you see companies now changing how they're structuring compensation and performance bonuses to meet the needs of millennials who in in this guy's mind, I guess, feel like that millennials, and this sounds like a giant misconception, is that millennials would rather have experiences than money. Um, what are your thoughts around all that? I think that uh, there's been a lot of studies that have shown that in the end, compensation isn't generally what keeps someone at a company. Uh, there's generally several things that are, are they found it in this, they've actually seen this across generations is that it's a level of connectedness, both to the mission and to the other employees. It is um, opportunities perceived opportunities for growth. So being able to have a job where uh, you are learning new things constantly. Um, and then really just like a focus on uh, being able to uh, have flexibility and autonomy. The perception of autonomy is is the third thing. And so if you have connectedness, autonomy, and areas for growth, um, that's where a lot of companies are focusing now. And so I'm guessing, you know, maybe, maybe these trips have some sort of aspect of connectedness, maybe if they're with other employees, I'm not sure. But I think if you're if you're a company that's trying to retain people, focusing more on those areas, then, okay, what's the bonus structure that is going to be better for this new generation? Or what's going to be the best way to, um, you know, get this monetary amount, uh, you know, to exchange hands in one way or another? Yeah. And I, I didn't, I, I kind of read her, her tweet with a little bit of a raised eyebrow because in my mind, I read it as this is clearly a company that's valuing its younger workforce and trying to align uh, kind of the needs of that population, you know, to what the company can do to meet those needs. And so I guess it would be the equivalent of it, the current company you work for if they came to you and said, hey, Madeline, instead of doing your, uh, you know, your 20% bonus this year, we're going to give you an opportunity to take that money and apply it to some kind of an experience. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I mean, ultimately, you could just say, no, I'd rather just have the money, right? Right, which 
is, yeah, I think, I think that would really have to be on an individual basis. Cause I could see plenty of people who have mortgages, who have kids, which many millennials at this point have mortgages and kids, uh, would, would definitely hope for the money. Let's talk about a situation which is becoming increasingly common. And, um, I wanted to get your thoughts on it. Uh, let's say you're somebody who works at a company and you've been in the workforce for 20 plus years. And now suddenly you have a boss who is younger than you, significantly younger than you, perhaps a millennial, maybe you're a, like me, a Gen Xer. Um, what does that dynamic look like? I mean, do, do you do you talk or work with people or hear from people that are either younger, managing more experienced people or more experienced people who have to report to a less experienced boss or manager? And what are some of the challenges and opportunities that can come out of that? Absolutely. And this this definitely is, is happening all the time, especially with what I found in today's job market is saying I have 20 years of marketing experience doesn't actually tell me much about your talent for the role I'm hiring for. Reason being is just marketing is just one example is that the marketing, the role of digital marketing and everything, if you're not staying up to date year over year about SEO changes, about different um, tools and different social media platforms that are rising, you are already behind. So whatever, you know, whatever experience you had 20 years ago, marketing has changed so much. And that's the same as in lots of different um, professions and industries. So you'll notice people who are maybe younger, but become really specialized and really build these, um, these more recent skills can rise up quickly. And so I think what the d- dynamics there is, um, I think everyone, I think the leaders themselves need to have a servant leader mindset where you as a leader are not judged by how many answers you have, but the performance of your team and you helping to make sure that your team is performing at the highest um, possible ability that they have. Um, And then also uh, if you're someone who is older, who is reporting to someone younger than you um, to, to use it as like a a two way uh, learning experience that you'll be learning plenty from that person um, that uh, they'll be learning plenty from you. And, and just, and as long as that leader is also seeing themselves as, as serving you, making sure you're going to shine and be successful, it usually works out. Um, I had someone the other day, uh, he's, he's awesome. He's one of my students. He's, he's in his fifties and he posted the other day, he said, I have a mentor on LinkedIn. Um, she's, you know, 20 something years younger than me. Um, and and her name is Madeline Mann. And I thought it was such a really adorable thing for him to post about on LinkedIn because he's like, yeah, I'm a guy in my 50s. I, I you know, I look to uh, this young woman to help me on LinkedIn because she knows the ins and outs of it. And I think that, um, you know, that doesn't that doesn't say that he doesn't know so much more about so many other things than I do. But just being able to appreciate different people for um, the different things they bring to the table. I think uh, I think it was uh Bill Nye that said, everyone you meet knows something you don't know. Yeah, it's it's awesome that you point that out because it kind of makes me think you can flip the idea of the, the mentorship relationship upside down, right? And generally, when you think about a mentor, you think about somebody who's like has more life experience or more experience in, in a particular area that can kind of guide you and mold you. And so there's no reason why somebody who's older in terms of years can't have a a mentor who's younger than them, if that mentor excels in an area um, that that individual 
maybe doesn't yet. So um, it's it's not common to see that, but I really like that idea. It's it's a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. I think there's yeah, there's so much, and a lot of the people I do a lot of. Um, I have a course on LinkedIn for thought leaders where people learn how to become thought leaders on LinkedIn. And a lot of my demographic is does skew a bit older. And uh, it's been really fun to work with them. And uh, because they actually, their ability to be thought leaders is is even greater because they have all this amazing life experience, but they don't have the the knowledge of how do we work the LinkedIn algorithm? How do we make sure that we are hitting on these like traits of virality? So yeah, it's like kind of it, the, the combining of, of that experience for me and then their life experience is like kind of like a superpower that I love teaming up with them with. You mentioned thought leader. Uh, that's not something that we've had a chance to talk a lot about in other episodes on my show, but what is a thought leader and how does somebody become one? So what I've noticed is that to become a thought leader, the first thing that needs to happen is that you need to decide that you're ready to speak up. And that is it. The, the, uh, the barrier of entry to begin sharing your story, to begin sharing um, advice or, or insights is really just you having the courage to finally step forward. And you have to believe that the world is going to be a better place because of it. And that saying that sounds simple, but it's really scary for a lot of people. And I work with a lot of people to, to get over that um, hump. And what's been amazing is, you know, there's no barrier of entry to YouTube. There's absolutely no barrier to entry to LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn is, I found, is one of the ultimate uh, evening of the playing field. Really, anyone can get on there. And I have talked to such incredible uh, people with such high stature in the business world on LinkedIn and it's so accessible and the virality that you can achieve on LinkedIn when you unlock um, exactly what what lands with your audience is one of the best out of any social media platform. You'll hear Gary Vee talk about it, about how the organic reach is pretty insane. And that's what I teach is that if you want to be a thought leader, I can get you in front of thousands and thousands and thousands of, of eyeballs every day um, by you telling your message on LinkedIn. So you basically have to say, I'm ready to share what I have with the world. And I really believe in my heart that it's going to make the world a better place. And then I guess the second part to that would be, and maybe there's more than one, more than two parts, but the second part would be, okay, what is it that I'm actually sharing? And I would imagine that you'd have to have some knowledge or expertise in a specific functional area. And then I guess probably the third piece would be the actual going about of doing it, right? Right. You need to understand what what your expertise is and who you help. Um, what, what's, what's your target? And, and it's pretty crazy because people think you have to be some deep expert in one area, but you really just need to be one step ahead in a journey than someone else. So let's say that I just started a YouTube channel, like three months ago. I could I could post about thought leadership on how to how to get over how I got over my fear to start a YouTube channel and some of the first few things that I did to get it up and running. You know, like it, it's it's so crazy how even just that is a valuable thing to add to the world. So I think we need to not overthink it. Um, and then you really need to get your your messaging clear about who, you know who you are um, online. And then I think the best first step um, because I teach a lot about how to post a really great LinkedIn post that can reach many people is the the first step to posting 
an amazing post on LinkedIn is to post an okay post. So just post the okayest post you can. And it's probably not going to do that well. But when you just start talking about the things you care about, start talking about um, the messages you want to get out into the world, you start learning what you actually want to say. So it feels scary. You, But the wonderful thing is that on LinkedIn, the half-life of any LinkedIn post is about 24 hours and then it just degrades from there. So it's almost like this beautiful piece of sand art that you you paint in the sand and then it blows over overnight. So yeah. there's really the, the, the <laughs> it's not a high pressure situation. Well, and it's like anything else. I think um, when you want to start something, you're going to probably suck at it until you don't. Right. So like if you decide you want to start running marathons or you want to be, you know, a distance runner and you haven't been running for years, you can't expect that you're going to go out and crush a five mile run. Right. You may be able to just run a couple laps around the track and that's a, good start. And you can't beat yourself up because it's just the repetition of doing it uh, over time. You'll you'll improve. And I, I love what you said about, um, I mean, it really encapsulizes to me what the whole idea of a thought leader is, which is you're someone who's a few steps ahead of someone else on a journey, right? And um, yes, we're all, we're all on at least one, probably many journeys in our lives. So um, the value of being able to kind of be ahead of the trail and have seen what comes along the path and to be able to share that with people that are further back on the trail, you're like a trail leader. And I think what you said is the first step is you have to decide you want to do it. So I would imagine there's plenty of people out there that are pretty far ahead on their journey or on the trail that just haven't gotten to a point in their life where they either have the time or have the desire to share. And and that's okay, right? Not everybody is going to be a thought leader. Correct. Exactly. It needs to, the, the moment it feels like too much work or, or if you, if you notice yourself just not enjoying the process of interacting with people out there, putting your voice out there, then it might not be for you. But I know a lot of people when they take this journey, it is so incredibly rewarding. Their network grows tenfold. Um, they start being able to help people on a grander scale and they feel more professionally fulfilled. I mean, is that how you measure success as a thought leader is like the growth of your network or your reach? I mean, how do you quantify success? Is it just that you felt good doing it? Um, what advice do you give to folks who are saying, okay, now that I'm doing it, I want to start to actually measure success. Right. I, the way I personally measure it is testimonials. So I get emails every day about Madeline, your video on this or your, you know, playlist of this or your post on LinkedIn changed my life because, you know, I then got the dream job or I said exactly what you said and I was able to get that promotion or I was able to, after your webinar, I was able to then grow my LinkedIn presence X amount. And then, uh, that has led to, you know, me to be able to get a speaking engagement on one of the biggest stages I've ever gotten. Like those are the things that I measure of, because my commitment to everyone is to give the most actionable information I can to lead to, um, like really repeatable results. And so that's, that's my cue back to me that I'm doing what I've set out to do. Now, would you advise others to follow the same, like, KPI, key performance indicator, or does each individual have to figure out what's important to them and then start from there? I think that it, it depends a little bit about what your end goal is. I think 
um, if you're looking to, uh, you know, grow your network, sometimes one a very, very simple KPI that I do for when I'm teaching people on LinkedIn to build uh, thought leadership is I say, you're going to know how many views you get on a post. You're going to know how many likes you get on a post. But the true measure of if you are engaging your network and getting them starting a conversation where they really value your post is looking at the comments. So if you have a lot of posts on LinkedIn that get a lot of comments, a lot of uh, dialogue happening, I think as a thought leader, you provoking that dialogue is such a great indicator that you are saying something that's resonating to people and they are, um, then the post doesn't become about you anymore. It becomes about the audience. Right. And then you're like kind of enabling community and conversation as opposed to just sharing your wildly brilliant thought of the day. Exactly. All right. So circling back on the topic of uh, job search, what would you say are one or two or three of the most common mistakes you see job seekers making? I would say that the number one thing is thinking that applying online is a good, productive, check the box way to get a job. Uh, a lot of people will tell me, Madeline, I am currently applying to about 100 jobs a week. Um, I realize that's not that many. I'm really going to work on applying to about 150 jobs a week. Uh, do you have any other advice for me? And I go, okay, you're first of all, you're applying to way too many jobs. I, I can't believe that you would even be qualified and have, be a perfect fit for that many. Um, what I say is um, focus on fewer jobs and, and never just apply. So what you need to do is... Um, is that you need to find people in your network who can refer you. Um, now, these people don't even need to be in your network. They can be anyone on LinkedIn. Scott, I could reach out to you and just be like, hey, I listened to your podcast. You, I know you you know so much about hiring, and I saw you're connected to you know Nancy at this company. Would you you know, be able to pass along my resume or something like that. But wait a sec, um, Madeline, you're, that, you're, what you're describing there, it sounds like that's going to require some effort on my part to do that. <laughs> exactly. And it's like the long way is the short way, right? So obviously I had to, I had to look into you and I had to listen to, you know, I listened to four of your podcasts and then I um, wrote this customized message to you and then I talked to you. Um, but the odds that you are then able going to be able to get that to Nancy and then I'll be able to get an interview are, I don't know, just some ridiculous percentage higher than me applying to 50 roles and hoping that one of them is going to call me back. So do you think that people do the old school apply to jobs approach because people are inherently lazy and it's just an easy way to do it? And they think that, well, I'm doing it, so that should be enough. Or do you think it's a, a misunderstanding about what's actually involved in the process? I think... I think it's definitely, there's definitely a level of misunderstanding because if you have been in academia your whole life, that's what you do. You apply, you just apply and you just hope that you get in based on your merit and that's it. Uh, so I definitely understand a misunderstanding aspect. I think the other part is um, people will tell me, Madeline, there's no way I'm reaching out to Scott. Like that's terrifying. I don't know him. What if I say the wrong thing? You know, he has his own company. He's a CEO. Like, wow, like that's way too intimidating. I could never do that. Um, which is why I actually did write a book called fill in the blank job hunt, which is where I just write out every single email you need in your job search so that people stop overthinking it of like, what am I going to say? What if they hate me? What if I get rejected? Um, because it really is, it is this fear of rejection and this fear of reaching out outside of 
of your own um, bubble, which is very understandable, but it really is how you're going to get um, the job that you really want. Yeah. And I, and I can second that because I give the same advice to uh, job seekers, exactly what you're saying, which is, you know, you have got to be willing to do like a campaign, right? And it's going to require some effort. It's going to require some research and some time. But the good news is that the majority of people, the vast majority of people are not doing it that way. So you're going to stand out immediately just by being the one who takes the steps to do it. And it's kind of, it's what I have to do in my professional work as a headhunter is I have to research which companies are hiring. I have to figure out who I know at those companies. I have to bring something to the table of value. And then I have to continue convince them to pay me a fee, right? To hire the person I'm representing. And so for you as the job seeker, all you're trying to do is fill a vacancy that you know they already have. You're just going about it in a very strategic way and you're not asking them to pay you a fee. So if I could do it for money, you could do it yourself uh, for free, but you just have to be willing to do it. So um, in closing, Madeline, I did want to ask you, I mean, you sound like you've really got it all together, right? I mean, you you're charging ahead in your career. You've got this awesome side hustle. You're a thought leader. You're, you know, you're blowing up on LinkedIn and YouTube, but, um, what's the, the thing that keeps you awake at night? Like what's, what's your biggest fear right now in terms of kind of, it doesn't necessarily need to be your personal life, but you know, in your professional life, in the work that you're doing, like what's the nagging fear that you have that keeps you going? I would say that I, we covered a lot of topics today. And I think that what people tell me about how I will be successful is to zero in to be either the LinkedIn gal or be the how to ace a job interview, you know, guru or whatever it is. And that um, I think sometimes I struggle with being multi-passionate. And I think this is a struggle that a lot of people face is um, you read a lot of people's LinkedIn profiles and they're they're all over the place. You know, they do, they do all these different things and they're super passionate about lots of different things and people don't necessarily know what to go to them for, um, their specific niche. And so I would say that, um, while I am, everything I do is career and job search, uh, that even that topic is broad. And so sometimes what keeps me up at night is, do I need to be, do I need to be even a smaller niche? Yeah, I think that's smart. And I have the exact same fear, uh, that you have because, I always think in a professional sense, if you can zero down to, I am the person that people call for X, right? And you are that person. You are the hired gun for that very specific thing. You do it better than anybody else. And the more specific you can be about it, the better. I think the easier it will be to market yourself because it's highly targeted. It's highly niched. But the problem is creative people like yourself and I I think like myself as well, we tend to be diverse and we have a lot of interests and we have a lot of talents and things that excite us and we're passionate about. And so and maybe we're good at all those things. Right. So I just think it's a discovery. It's just putting yourself out there, following your passion. And then at some point, the focus hopefully starts to narrow in. Would you agree? Exactly. And so it has been a journey for me. Um, and I think it's, and when I say this, I mean, so many people can relate to it and it really, so we'll see, you know, we'll talk in, we'll talk in 12 months. We'll see where I'm at. What, if I have got become that one person for that one thing. Um, but you're so right. It's just so much fun to talk on these, all these different topics. And I, I really, I, all of them light me up. So it's, yeah, it's a struggle. (laughs) Well, and it seems like what you're doing is working. So I think having a little bit of anxiety and fear around getting better is always a good thing. But in the meantime, uh, for all you guys listening, 
Go follow Madeline on YouTube. Her channel is Self Made Millennial. Follow her on LinkedIn. She has incredible insights uh, for such a young lady. Great video content, great inspirational and motivational posts, uh, value for all. Thank you so much for being here, Madeline. Thank you so much, Scott. All right. And thank you, everybody, for listening.